Today on Global Reboot, how big tech is threatening our democratic institutions and what we as citizens can do to fight back. Eight million having already voted under the threat of foreign interference. Just as quickly as it can spread misinformation, it can unite people around a common cause. I'm Ravi Agrawal, and this is Foreign Policy Magazine. Here on Global Reboot, we think about old problems in new ways. But this week, the problem is relatively new. The rapid growth of technology, its expansive role in our lives, as well as the consequences we couldn't have imagined. It's been quite the journey. Tonight, the information superhighway and one of its main thoroughfares, an online network called Internet. Imagine, if you will, sitting down to your morning coffee, turning on your home computer to read the day's newspaper. Well, it's not as far-fetched as it may seem. A couple of months ago, there was like a big breakthrough announcement <laughs> that on the Internet or on some computer deal, they were going to broadcast a, a baseball game. You could listen to a baseball game on your computer. And I just thought to myself, does radio ring a bell? <laughs> <laughs> yep, a few things have changed since then. But where do we go from here? Today I'm joined by Maricha Schacher, a former member of the EU's parliament, where she was a leader on cybersecurity in Europe's digital agenda. These days, she's a director at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. And Vivian Schiller is the former president and CEO of NPR, as well as the former head of news at Twitter. She currently serves as the executive director of Aspen Digital. I started the conversation by asking Maricha how she first got interested in tech. You see, Maricha was an outsider to politics and used social media to reach out to potential voters. It worked. She was first elected to the EU's parliament when she was just 30 years old. But while she was able to use social media and tech to foster a grassroots campaign, she quickly saw how its power could be misused. So in 2009, we saw a big downside in Iran where people took to the streets to protest their election outcomes. A record number of Iranians, fully 80%, turned out to vote last week. Hours after the polls closed, the results showed that President Ahmadinejad had won in a landslide. But Unprecedented in- protests in parts of the capital, Tehran. Thousands of young opposition protesters spilled out onto the streets in a spontaneous outburst of anger against what they said was a rigged election. The battles along one of Tehran's main avenues were captured by amateur video. At the biggest rally the city has seen since the 1979 revolution. Marched, some chanting death to dictatorship. And on the one hand, you know, the use of social media and mobile phones was celebrated. But on the other hand, we learned how much surveillance, monitoring and repression through technologies the Islamic Republic's regime was using against its citizens. So I guess in that one summer, being elected myself and seeing what happened in the Islamic Republic of Iran, became very clear to me that without deliberate efforts, technology would not just lead to positive, democratizing, liberalizing outcomes. And then similarly, I remember that year, there were other similar movements of suppression in Myanmar and other parts of the world. And then in a sense, we began to see tech not only as this story of promise and hope, but also as a tool for repression, as something that's not just a hopeful story, right? And then it only got worse. Yeah, I mean, the lessons were right in our faces. But I think for a lot of people, it seemed, you know, different context far away. And now, after 2016, the um, the foreign interference in the U.S. election, but also disinformation, eroding trust, both in the vaccines and in the democratic process, 
all of these risks have also hit home. The idea that technology is a strength that, for example, the United States can just celebrate is now, I think, a myth that has been pierced and it requires urgent action to preserve democracy. Vivian, what about you? I mean, you've had this storied career in journalism at so many different organizations. And across the board, that too is a sector that's in a sense been both helped by technology, but also decimated by it. Yeah, it's really a paradox. You know, I got into digital technology really by accident. I was a journalist. I was a television journalist. I was as analog as you could get. Even as I was having to come up to speed very quickly, that was the beginning of such a profound change. At the time, to me, it was all potential. What a powerful set of tools to reach more people. I even took it so far as to join Twitter to become their head of news. And it was just somewhere around that time, this pivot began to happen, at least in my head. It was there before, but where I'm like, wait a minute, this is not all flowers and balloons and promise. This is potentially getting really scary. And that's when I really went down the rabbit hole and never looked back. And here we are in the rabbit hole. Um, so let's let's <laughs> deep down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into that. Let's talk about why we're here and what we're talking about today. Maricha, all around the world, governments are now moving to limit the power of tech companies. I wanted to get at the scope of the problem. Why? Why is everyone talking about the need to regulate big tech? The writings were really on the wall much beyond the democratic world first. So a lot of lessons about risks to the electoral process, the actual spilling over of disinformation on the screen to violence in the streets. Just as a side note, I was the chief observer of the EU election observation mission in Kenya. The kinds of information that went around there in a country that was really on a knife's edge with a history of election-related violence, Facebook at the time took out page-wide ads to warn Kenyans about disinformation on the internet. And I was kind of like, and on their platform, of course, it's like, well, maybe do something instead of taking out ads, warning people, you know, it is remarkable how long it has taken for regulators to wake up. I actually think that it's been a tremendous loss of time on the part of leaders in democratic nations to make sure that Anything from human rights protection in the digital context to trade rules in the digital context to interpretations of international law around war and peace were also clarified, if not updated, for everything that's happening in the digital world. So, yes, we see regulatory initiatives now, but it's late. The question is whether it's in time in light of the outsized power of the private sector and of rising so-called techno-authoritarianism, authoritarianism amplified by the use of technology. And the timing point is interesting, Maricha, because the thing about the last year, the pandemic, we've only become more reliant on technology. It's allowed us to work from home. It's allowed delivery companies to flourish, for example. And we're now at a point where the 10 biggest tech companies in the world have a combined market cap of about $10 trillion. That's more than the combined GDPs of India, the UK and Germany. So, I mean, is it fair to then say that we're at a point where companies like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple, they just have too much power? Yes, it is absolutely fair. And it is fair when you look at those economic numbers, their stock value and what they can buy. But 
there's also the question of how much impact they have on people's lives, children's lives, people's mental health, public safety, public health when it comes to the spreading of disinformation or anti-vaxxer hoaxes in over-the-top services. And it's absolutely justified that there are limits put to that power. And I think too much of the response is ad hoc, looking at questions of cybersecurity, looking at the protection of children, looking at antitrust and competition. But the legitimacy question is not asked often enough. Why do we allow so many crucial decisions to be made by a handful of unaccountable corporate leaders that essentially impact vast amounts of citizens around the world. I think that legitimacy question needs to be prioritized much more. Indeed, it does. Vivian, I wanted to ask you about an area that you have specialized in a fair bit, uh, again, given your background as a journalist as well, because it's not just about the power and the data that Marich is talking about. It's also about misinformation and disinformation. We have more media than ever to choose from. But with that also comes lies, hoaxes, and other fake news stories. If we can't discriminate between serious arguments and propaganda, then we have problems. Chaos at the Capitol. A mob supporting and encouraged by President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol. A lot of the rhetoric that led up to this riot was based on misinformation that spread quickly on social media. Mob was fed lies. And that's part of the problem with technology. I mean, in the last decade, we've made unbelievable advances in how quickly information can go from A to B, which has made the work that I do and the work that you used to do so much easier and better in some senses. But all of that has also enabled the greatest spread of fake news in the history of the world, hasn't it? Yes. I mean, obviously, false information, propaganda, mis- and disinformation has been around for millennia. But what we're talking about now is these powerful, global, world-dominating machines that can get those into the hands and heads of people at scale in a way that is not transparent and in a way that is specifically targeted to the kinds of headlines based on people's data and behavior that they would be most attracted to. We're at a stage where we no longer have a shared reality. It's a huge problem. Let's try and look at some solutions now, because I imagine many of the people listening in today have their own stories about the problems with technology or the ways in which they feel they're being tracked or the ways in which we've given up so many rights to our data. The question then is how to fix it, how to have more control. Maricha, so many different countries have their own approaches. Europe has probably taken the lead on this front, but countries like China and India, even Russia, have have also either issued heavy fines for anti-competitive practices or to silence protests. And in the U.S., meanwhile, with the Biden administration, the new White House seems to be assembling a team of antitrust stars, such as Tim Wu and Lena Khan. Which approach do you think is the best one? Well, I don't think we have a best practice to point to yet when it comes to a democratic governance model. That is what I believe we need. So yes, antitrust enforcement is a part of that. Antitrust rules really need updating to deal with the realities of tech companies that are assembling data, merging that data in new ways. But there's also entire areas where there isn't such clarity about what needs to be improved about existing laws to make them cover 
new realities in a digital context. For example, we've recently seen two historic intrusions and hacks happening, the SolarWinds hack, the Exchange Server hack, and a lot of debate about whether, for example, the types of intrusions said to be for espionage uh, on the part of Russia even violated any norms or laws. And you really have to wonder if an attack of that scale doesn't violate any norms, whether your norms are up to date. My answer is they're not, and they need to be updated. And so ideally, I would like to see much more cooperation between countries that share the same foundation of values, that are rule of law based, that uh, respect human rights, and they together can create scale of a governance model that on the one hand offers a level playing field for companies, which is great for them instead of having to adhere to different rules in different markets. But it's also a better way to offer a counterweight to the techno-authoritarian model because we should not be kidding ourselves. This is a systems competition of which technology is an increasingly important part, which will decide economic aspects, security aspects, rights aspects, freedom aspects, and an integrated comprehensive approach is therefore needed where I would say it should not be the technology that's leading. I believe that the starting point should be the democratic values. That's how countries should work together better. A complicating factor in what you're describing, and I I like the idea of democratic countries banding together to create a level playing field, to create rules that big tech has to adhere to, but then what happens to other countries? And the reason why I think that's an important question, not only for, say, autocracies, but even countries which are somewhere in the middle of the democratic spectrum or are developing countries that are not really part of this conversation in the same way. I mean, take, for example, a country like the Philippines. I remember this story from maybe about a decade ago where more people had a brand awareness of Facebook than they did of the internet. So they would often walk into stores and say, I would like to sign up for Facebook. And they wouldn't know that they needed the internet to get onto Facebook. They thought Facebook was the internet. What do you do in places like that where the internet came a bit late. It came because of smartphones, because of uh, mobile technology. And there's this confusion about what the web really is. Well, I believe that it's always important to engage with countries, no matter how big the difference is. So for democratic countries to work together better doesn't mean that they can't engage with any types of other countries. It would be on the basis of a stronger vision, a stronger foundation. And I actually think if you look at the European Union, it's not only a leader when it comes to initiating tech regulations, but also when it comes to development. And there has been a huge missed opportunity not to connect, for example, development aid, which is invested in tech infrastructure, and not to connect to it assistance in, for example, updating laws that protect people's privacy. I've seen elections organized where biometric data is taken for people to identify themselves in countries where no data protection laws exist. So people have no legal shield, even if those technologies are rolled out. And of course, when private companies are not regulated, they will also seek to enter into any market, as you so well illustrated with the Facebook example, that some people didn't even know there was an an open internet. They thought that Facebook was the internet, but I think it only underlines how behind we are on putting guardrails up You mentioned rules, uh, Maricha, but if I were to push you to describe 
two or three of the main rules that you think we just can't wait any longer on, what would those be? Uh, data protection rules. We have a start in Europe. It's not perfect. A lot needs to improve. But the fact that the US doesn't have a federal data protection law, I think, is a big challenge. Uh, updating the whole package of laws around national security and cybersecurity. There's often trade-offs there that are not openly discussed. The application of international law, so rules around war and responsible behavior in peacetime, and then accountability mechanisms for all of them. Uh, too often the rules exist on paper, but the actual consequences for people that violate the rules are too minimal. And the question then is how to enforce these rules across so many different countries. Vivian, you were part of a group of academics and media executives at Harvard and NYU that put out an influential white paper of steps that the Biden administration should take on regulating disinformation and other harmful content on social media. What were the most important of those recommendations and why is it important? One of the issues that we're facing in the United States in particular is the collapse of a robust local news. It really has been decimated over the course of the last 15 years. And the problem is- In part by big tech. There's a whole bunch of reasons. Certainly a lot of the money that was going to news organizations online is now going to tech, without a doubt. In the absence of independent news, that void is being filled with mis- and disinformation. A lot of it is either these sort of zombie sites that are popping up that just spread a lot of garbage, frankly. A lot of it is rumor and innuendo and neighbor to neighbor. A lot of it is closed things like Facebook groups where researchers can't even see it. It's where information, mis- and disinformation is, is running rampant. So things like changing the rules around a monopolistic behavior so that news organizations can collectively bargain with the platforms or ways that perhaps there are some taxation on digital ads that creates a pool of money that can support local journalism as long as that fund is governed by third parties and not the government. That was a big part of it. Embattled Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg is calling for stricter regulation of the web, including his own company. In an op-ed... Maricha, I keep hearing executives from tech companies say that they welcome regulation. This comes up a lot. Almost any time these days, they are being grilled on Capitol Hill. I think the internet is increasingly important. embrace regulation? I think the real question, as the internet becomes more important in people's lives, is what is the right regulation, not whether there should but, but be or not. But you as a company welcome regulation? I think if it's the right regulation, then yes. You think the Europeans have it right? I think that they get... The European Union's General Data Protection Regulation, known to friends as GDPR, goes into effect tomorrow. It regulates the collection and processing of people's personal data within the EU. And this is all coming as tech companies assemble gigantic lobbying power in Washington and other global capitals. You're right. And we've seen a lot of lobbying against regulation. So words and actions don't add up. But there is another aspect that I think is often lost in the discussion about how to deal with big tech. And that is that regulating is a process and the outcomes can vary a great deal. So, I mean, I was a lawmaker for, for 10 years and 
I would never say I'm in favor of regulation because it all depends on regulation for what, you know? And so the whole idea that regulation always has one outcome, for example, this notion that regulation stifles innovation that we often hear is, of course, nonsensical. One, innovation is not above all kinds of other interests. And uh, secondly, we've seen a lot of examples where regulations have actually really fostered innovations. And thirdly, and I think most importantly, without regulations, there would not be press freedom. There would not be protection of minority rights. There would not be antitrust rules in place. So the real question is, what principles, what kinds of notions of justice do we want to enshrine in laws? And how should those laws be updated? And so whenever somebody says we're for or against regulation, ask them about the outcomes. Let's try to make this a more sophisticated, substantial discussion about what we want to achieve instead of celebrating a process that can lead to all kinds of outcomes, good and bad. This is a question for both of you, I guess. How urgent is the need for any kind of regulation? What happens if we kick the can down the road for another two or three years? Marietje, I'll start with you. Well, we just talked about how the COVID pandemic has really exacerbated some of these existing uh, tensions about the outsized power of tech companies. And I should add that it, it's not a problem just with big tech. I think it's a, an ecosystem of technology companies that are uh, governing over more and more aspects of people's lives. And every day that that continues, it will become harder to reverse. And so it has all kinds of implications for how we want to basically run our democratic societies. Do we think it is justified and legitimate to have so many critical decisions made by advertising companies? Do we think it is helpful that a lot of knowledge about how tech works forever stays in the hands of companies? It will never benefit the public. It's all proprietary. Do we accept risk of software being apparently so vulnerable, yet it's being sold and used to run the most sensitive databases and processes in the U.S. government, at NATO, at the European Parliament, with AstraZeneca. There is a dangerous dependence on tech companies, and people suffer principles like fairness in the economy, human rights online, security aspects. They, they're all under huge pressure, and so this cannot wait. This cannot wait. It will be difficult enough to solve a number of these problems. We have to start yesterday. Vivian, what about you? I will say the need for change is urgent. But what I don't want to do is say that all of the answers lie in the corridors of Washington, D.C. or in, in the State House to make change. I think while it is obviously not enough, I think that working with and keeping pressure on tech companies to make policy changes within their own shops for those in civil society to do what's necessary to try to restore a common sense of, uh, of reality, which is it's not only in the hands of government and it's not only in the hands of tech companies. Vivian, I promised that I would try and end on a slightly hopeful note, um, given that we've spent so much time talking about problems. But what about technology today? Given everything we know, what about technology makes you hopeful? Well, we do spend a lot of time talking about the problems and we should and we must because they have to be fixed. But I also just want to point to what many wondrous things technology has enabled. I looked the other day because it's still so top of mind 
about the conviction of police officer Chauvin in the murder of George Floyd. That would not have happened if you look at the initial police reports, were it not for Darnella. Darnella Frazier. Who, with her iPhone, stood and recorded and bore witness to the murder of this man and then shared it and it ricocheted around the world. That would never would have come to light. There never would have been any justice or accountability in that case were it not for technology and the rise even of Black Lives Matter and so many other important causes that can galvanize online. That's just one example of many positive forces that have come from technology. And I think that is worth nurturing and celebrating. When I was a correspondent in, in India, I wrote a book about exactly this issue called India Connected. And it was all about how the smartphone has just been this immense agent of change in a way that were it just for the PC and landlines, India would not have had the uptake it had with the internet that it is having now, both for good and for bad. But one of the things that really struck me as powerful, among the many things that struck me as powerful when I was there, was that... India has about 300 million illiterate people. And for all of them, the internet on a PC, I mean, they'll never have a PC, but was always going to be cut off. And with smartphones, they're able to speak to Google. They're able to communicate with technology. They're able to use the internet in a way that I think is quite powerful. And it's also not just in English, but in a range of languages. And that's one thing that still leaves me with some hope, even though it's so important to regulate that and so important to make sure that it's not dominated by misinformation. Uh, Maricha, I'm going to give you the last word. What makes you hopeful? I see a lot of great initiatives that are focused on public infrastructure, public stack, civic tech, really community-based, community-owned, community-built technology, which I think is a very important counterweight to everything that comes from the private sector, you know, empowering people to deal with technology. Those are the kinds of initiatives that really inspire me and excite me about the future. My thanks to Maricha Schaker, former member of the European Parliament, and Vivian Schiller, former president and CEO of NPR, as well as the former head of news at Twitter. She currently serves as the executive director of Aspen Digital. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zamone Perez. Next time on the podcast, is capitalism in crisis? How do we fight inequality? And in this era of big government, how do we build back better? I'll speak to two of the world's best-known economists, Mariana Matsukato and Raghuram Rajan. When we go to war, has any country ever said, oh, sorry, we can't fight World War II because there's no money? Money is created. The problem is we always create it just in emergencies, in wartime and in crises like this one when it's too late. Going forward, the belief that this is the last crisis we have to deal with and that from now on it's going to be easy is wrong. We do have to keep some spending capacity also for the next crisis. That's next week on Global Reboot.